Listener Production. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders, and for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learned on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. This episode, I'm going to take a slightly different approach with my guest. I'm going to probe into the personal and emotional experience of policing and what it feels like to be with people, be it victims or perpetrators, on the worst day of their lives. I was walking up and I was processing the fact and the gravity of just holding someone's hand with their last breaths. Jason Semple started in general duties with the New South Wales Police before eventually joining the Australian Federal Police Specialist Response Group, where he was deployed on peacekeeping missions in places like Afghanistan and the Solomon Islands. After nine years overseas, Jason returned home and stepped back into his New South Wales police uniform. To begin this chat, we're going back to 1998. It's Jason's second week on the job as a probationary constable with the New South Wales Police in Sydney. He's off duty and walking home with a mate after a few quiet drinks. Um, it's something that did turn horribly wrong and it, um, I suppose no, no one's ever prepared for it, especially in law enforcement. You, you know the risk is there, but um, it's always that old story, it won't happen to me. And two weeks after coming out of the academy, I'm lying in the gutter, you know, thinking I'm 100% convinced that I'm going to die right there, right then, on a Friday night in a wet, cold street in Sydney. So it was uh, not the uh, start to law enforcement that um, you're looking for, but we don't get to choose, you know, when these events occur. So two weeks earlier at the police academy, it was Friday the 13th, and I actually made a joke, is anyone else not thinking this is a really bad day to walk out on our passing out parade, being Friday the 13th. And so I, I suppose my joke on that occasion sort of came back. It came back to, to bite you, mate. I went into the police academy on April Fool's Day, so maybe there's a connection there. <laughs> <laughs> now, on this on this night, 28th of February, yep. you're with Peter Forsyth, yep. uh, Brian Neville. You'd been just out having a couple of social beers, and my understanding is you're walking back through Ultimo, and, and um, this is pretty close to, to Brian Forsyth's house. You're within yeah. 100 metres or so, his wife, a couple of kids. Yeah, so, you know, we, we dropped Peter off earlier in the in his shift, and our shift. He had to do a prisoner escort flying a young offender interstate, and um, I was actually really well behaved. I was drinking mid-strength. You know, so no one's intoxicated, and, you know, walking back down the street, you'd need to take into account, too, that I was wearing my police uniform. But I had a T-shirt on over the top, you know, quite clear to anyone in our business. You know, the criminals obviously are just as good at recognising us as we are them. And a young bloke incredibly approached us and tried to sell us an Eki ecstasy tablet. Um, and I was actually just gobsmacked at the, I, I suppose, the forwardness of it. I think he was only about 15 or 16 and obviously, because it was so close to Pete's house, and if some sort of activity like that's occurring near where you where you live and where you've got young kids and you're in the police, you, you don't turn a blind eye to it. So, um, you know, Pete, you know, me being the probationary constable at the time, I just basically kind of watch and listen. Mm. And, you know, he had a conversation with this young bloke and then 
who indicated that the actual drugs were um, with his brother across the road. You know, so quick conversation, he's gone over and the offender has come over, obviously, to sell us the tablet in his mind. At, at that point, you know, Pete and Brian really took charge. Um, he was under no illusion that we were police and that he was being detained. And Pete and Brian were directing him to get some identification out. He had a bum bag, you know, zipper front bum bag on at the time. He's sort of sitting on his haunches and he was just taking a little bit too much time, you know, rifling through the bum bag. At that point, Pete's like, get up, you know, it's just taking too long. So if you're not going to do it properly, we will. At a certain point, then he's basically said to the words to the effect, I'm, I'm out of here, you know, and pushed off. And at that point, I was on the far left and he pushed off. I pushed him back into the, against the doors because obviously he's not going anywhere. And um, I felt a couple of like punches, which I thought they were punches. So one to my chest mm -hmm. and then, you know, one to my abdominal area and um, thinking, is that the best you got? But um, from a psychology point of view, I, my brain had not detected what was actually occurring. And then I hear Brian yell out, knife, 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 you know, and he has actually pushed myself and Peter out of the way because he could see what we, obviously we, we didn't see. And as soon as Brian said that, it's this is all happening in microseconds, right? Mm. You wouldn't think it would occur, but I've actually at that even still at that point of time, I actually my brains starts putting two and two together and go, hang on, this is a knife. I've definitely felt some impacts. And looked down, I pulled my shirt up and then, you know, literally blood was spraying out of my abdominal wound. At that point, the offender has run off with Brian in pursuit. Pete's turned to me this morning a few times and basically laid me down into the gutter and he's yelling out the top of his voice, you know, trying to alert any of the locals that are, because there's people living straight across the road in those dwellings. Um, so he's yelling out the top of his voice to get help and lights are turning on. So, you know, obviously there's a bit of activity. Then he's, he's turned me, sort of leaning over me. I'm sort of half in the gutter, half on the pathway. And he goes, show me because I've got my hand over my, my abdominal wound. So he goes, give me a look. And I took my hand off and it's like obviously bleeding profusely. And he's, you know, put my hand back on. There. He goes, oh, for, you know, whatever you do. He's like, I'll say it how he said it. He said, for sake, keep your hand um, on that. And I was like, yeah, no, no problem. And um, it's the most surreal, life-altering it's even to this day, the fear is tangible. You can pick it up with the forklift and move it around. It's it's a real entity. Anyway, um, a very short period of time elapsed and Pete collapsed on top of me. And at that time, I actually just thought, it's funny, you know, you're in shock and there's a lot, of, there's a lot going on. And I thought Pete had fainted because he'd been talking to me. There is no external uh, indication that he'd been injured. There's no blood on him except for, for most likely mine. It was one of those moments where it's a little bit confusing, but you become self-absorbed. I think it's the one time you can be narcissistic and think about yourself because you're in this position and, and it's quite dire. Um, I actually struggled with this for a long time afterwards, not thinking towards him maybe like I should have. Right. But at the end of the day, you react in the, the way you, you're only a young fella. 
How, how old were you, just out of interest? 25. And you had a second knife wound yeah. as, as well. Were you realize, aware yeah. of that at the time? Not or, at the time, no. Not at the time. So okay. that one was directly over my heart, but the rib caught it. So it split the rib. Uh, so it did a bit of damage, but it never went through the rib. So the rib did its job as a part of your anatomy. Even if five millimetres either side of where that knife uh, struck, it would have slid off your rib and gone straight in and it wouldn't be talking to you. So it's like... Yeah, it's uh, it's quite horrific. So Peter's lying on top of you. Yep. You're thinking yourself, "I'm done here. Yeah, I'm gone." Yeah, and you're thinking, "I don't know," but you're thinking, "I don't know what's happened to Pete, but he, he maybe he's mm. fainted because of all the yeah. blood. Maybe yeah. he's, he's something's happened." Yeah. But you're not thinking. No, I'm not thinking. He's been in any way injured, no. stabbed, or anything. No. And then does Brian come back? Yes. So during that period where Pete is like screaming to get people's attention yeah that also triggered brian as he was in pursuit to sort of look back you know brian got down to there's a major intersection and the fenders turned right to go into a, a very um busy part of sydney and saw at that point saw that both of us were on the ground and then realized that getting the offender isn't as important as potentially coming back and looking after us when he took off after the offender, which is that natural instinct mm. to do that, yeah. he, he's seen the knife, but he didn't see you no. or Peter get stabbed. So no. he, he probably had no idea no. taking off that you'd well, been in any way injured. He's probably expecting us to be right, right, right behind, behind him. him. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, then yeah, when yeah. he's turned around and we're both You're laying on the, on the ground, yeah. he's obviously the enormity of, of that has hit him and he, so he's come come back to us. Um, when he got up to me, um, I was still cognizant of everything around me to a hyper level, actually. I remember I was focusing on like there was a river of my blood going down the pathway and, and I was watching it go over the um, the lip of the gutter. And that was you know one of those visuals where you go, well, there's no way in the world that I'm surviving this, you know. And it was just sheer, like I said, it's a tangible entity of fear. Mm. It's a very overwhelming self-preservation um, period. Um, when Brian came up, he's pulled Pete off. Our legs are sort of tangled. And the next thing I know, Brian's doing CPR. And I'm like going, what? Has he had a heart attack? Because there's no wound. There's no visible injury whatsoever. Of course, you can look at it now and go, you just got stabbed. Well, But it was just the sheer lack of um, any external visible mm-hmm. indicator that was, I suppose, through the confusion for me. And you're not thinking at your best. So Brian's obviously aware, because he's doing CPR, that yep. uh, Pete's in a bad way. Mm. And ambulances, the paramedics arrive, ambulances called. Who's first on scene at that point? Oh, you know, there's a lot of things that yeah. came together. Uh, you know, as with a lot of tragedy, there's all these little intricate nuances that come, sometimes come together that put someone somewhere that their X, Y, and Z happens, you know. Mm. And you think it's incredibly unlucky that X, Y, and Z came together and that person, this has happened to them. That can work for you as well. Yes. So by McGillchrist, God bless her, there was two ambulance buses, if you want to call them, the mm. crews from different areas catching up for a coffee, you know, Friday night, busy shift, you know, the type of work they do, it's incredible. So l- lucky for me, they were literally 60 seconds away. Mm. So yeah, I was really lucky. But, you know, once again, the guilt, the guilt that I had to deal with later, because when they arrived, they go straight to Pete and start trying to give life-saving first aid. 
And I'm like going, what is going on with Pete? You know, like, is he very confused? And mm -hmm. then I'm here by myself bleeding profusely and no one's with me. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it was like, a, it's almost a selfish self-preservation, um, you know, mentality kicks yeah. in. But you're, um, also, you're also just dealing with the information that you're processing yeah. and and there's a lot of confusion there yeah. and, and you're in shock and the, the whole nine yards. Isn't yeah. it? It's not and something it, you can prepare for. That period of time feels like, I could talk about it in the detail that you would swear it went for 30 minutes, but it's only two minutes. Yes. You know? Yes. So obviously the second crew come over and start, you know, working on me. Um, well, I don't think I was really one of their best patients. If you, you know, if you talk to Vi, mainly because I was just so hyper alert to the position I was in. So both you and Peter taken to local hospital, it would yeah. have been what, RPA? RPA. Close to there, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. So we're not far away, which is in our, my favour as well. Um, yeah. What I didn't realise is, you know, but before I was getting transported, um, the commander who was from um, City Central, when he arrived, he looked over at the two of us and go, someone go get a dying declaration off me. He was like, there is no way he's surviving those injuries. Mm. And not with the, the amount of blood that was around. Um, you know, when I talked to him later, he was convinced in his mind, I was most at risk, mm. but, you know, which is... Weird because Pete had already passed realistically. So, so he, Peter, uh, passed at the scene. Yeah, I think he'd, he'd already at that point. Um, they were still trying to stabilise me, and they and Pete had left in an ambulance. So mm. that boss, obviously, if Pete had still been there, they were they were taking him to hospital, and still obviously performing CPR all the yeah. way there. When he saw me and, and the injuries and blood, you know, he was obviously of that opinion that I wasn't going to make it. You lost like five litres of blood or something. Yeah, now, just, how, just how many, on five. How yeah. many do we have? I, I, I don't know. Five litres. And, you know, the the circumstantial um, aspects again, you know, there was like a chief surgeon been doing some training at RPA that week. So in terms of the injury I had, he's delivering training to other surgeons on procedural, you know, improvements or whatever mm. in that space. He's He was at RPA. So, you know, I roll up there and I've got a, this this incredible, you know, surgeon there. Any pain at that no, point? Because you've nothing. not mentioned it. No pain. And, and, and that's that's a bizarre thing too, yeah. isn't it? You, you, that sort of a scene, that sort of incident should be connected to being an almost excruciating pain as you're clinging on literally for life on the footpath, but you've not mentioned it once. There was no, 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 no memory of any pain. No pain, no. Your body just diverts energy and um, mm, attention mm. elsewhere. There was a few times I felt things, but I think it was just so, there was so, the gravity of it was so immense that it um, overrode, you know, because at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's a cut through your skin. So mm -hmm. it's not like I was broken leg or mm. hanging off. So at what point uh, did you become aware that Peter had gone? I asked quite a few times prior to going into surgery. There was like, oh, he's fine. Um, he's fine. He's in the next room, you know. So there's a few little, White lies, you know, said to me to probably hopefully calm me down. I, I was happy to, to know that. So I just basically stared at a uh, one of the diagnostic machines and tried to control my blood pressure and my pulse, you know, trying to calm myself. And I can thank Mick Drury. Um, I don't know if you know who Mick yeah. Drury is from the old Blue Murder. Yeah, he's um, an author now, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And he's, in a, he's a... Nettie Smith sort of... Yeah, era. yeah, out of that mm. era. Mm. Uh, like one of the... 
uh, most talented undercover operatives mm. that probably New South Wales had. But I'd been reading his book the night before and I got to a point where there was an assassination attempt on him at his home in North Sydney. So I got to that chapter where I knew this is a chapter he gets shot in and I nearly didn't read it. And then I go, nah, I'll have to read that before I go to sleep. So I read that chapter and in that bit, Mick refers to the fact he's laying on his floor in his kitchen, bleeding profusely, even less understanding of first aid training back in those days. And he goes, he knew the only thing he could really do to give himself some level of hope was um, calm. Just, if I stay calm, I don't go in a shock and I don't bleed as much. You know, so I'm reading that night before. You know, a lot of people say when certain incidents occur, that you know, their life flashes before their eyes. Obviously, to some degree, people have different experiences, but I, I'd use, rather use the analogy, it's like your brain, you've now got an issue that you really don't have any expertise to fix. And your brain's just searching your away like a, like you've, you've done a Google search. What do I do here? And so it's going to everything, every exposure you've ever had, trying to lock onto something. And my brain locked onto what Mick had said in his book. Mm. And, and so that was, I was like um, pathologically trying to remain calm. You know, even when people come up and ask me a question, I'd literally probably rudely a few times tell people to, where to go because you're interrupting my my concentration on being calm if that mm. makes sense yeah and to go back to your to answer your, your question i woke up the next day so saturday morning and um soup you know it's like when you come out of um anesthesia i've got the police commissioner at the end of my bed and you know all these people and um i mean i had this level of elation that you couldn't you know, this almost the same gravity as what I, the fear I'd had the night before. Mm. It's like, oh, I cannot believe it. I'm here. And then the the follow-on questions on Pete, and you, you get told that he's actually passed away. So you know, it derails that um, elation pretty quick. And that's there's another emotion that experience, call it what you will, that you, you just can't prepare for. Mm. So there's there's the elation of I've survived matched against the fact that your mate, your colleague who was trying to save you has passed away. Yeah. Would it be fair to say, Jace, at that time you experienced almost a bit of guilt? Is that one Incredible of the emotions? Incredible amount of guilt. Yeah. yeah. Is that still with you today? Uh, no, because I've been able to process it um, yeah. and put it in its true in its proper context. Yeah, especially sort of really think about the true timelines of what was occurring at the time. Yes. Um, and there's no way to go back and change it. But it's something that you carry for it for a period yeah. of time oh, as you're yeah. trying to yeah. as you're trying to process it all yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's it's a tough one but it's yeah. just one you just got to process it and um i suppose learn to get to some point where you, you you're at peace with any decisions you did or didn't make so you eventually of course you know there would there would have been quite a substantial period of hospitalization rehabilitation the whole nine yards at some point you're back in that uniform Yep. You're back out on the street. How does that look? How does that feel? 25 years of age, you've lost a colleague, you've come as close as anyone can ever come to losing their life. That, that's got to give you a different perspective. Things must change in your outlook. How, how, does, how does that work? It definitely matured me overnight. Yeah, and I suppose just my awareness of everything around me supercharged, you know, because you do get complacent. You do get comfortable in environments and you're probably not overlaying the amount of um, potential 
threat that you're going to every single time you go to a job. Yeah. It's just like um, now I'm in uniform and I know that the most innocuous job can go so badly. Ten years down the track, you take your career in a, in a slightly different direction. You step across and join the Australian Federal Police in a very high-level, highly trained environment, and that led to deployment in, amongst other places, the Solomon Islands. Can you just give us some background to that transition to the AFP and uh, the path that that took you on? Yeah, that's a hard one to brush over quickly, but the, <laughs> you know, so after the you know, the stabbing, you know, if you're fast forwarding, uh, I've been selected, uh, you know, done the selection program and trained up an operational uh, member of the New South Wales Police Tactical Operations Unit. And I was one of their breaches, explosive breacher and a, and a sniper in there. And um, there was an opportunity to apply the same type of um, tactical policing in a federal context with the federal police with some deployability involved. So, you know, they wanted a tack team that could do domestic, um, whether it was counterterrorism or serious crime, you know, serious organized crime. And then also be used as an asset for Australian government for overseas, whether it's, um, you know, a stabilization in Timor or um, Solomon Islands or whatever the role was. So referencing Solomons, um, my role in that operational response group, it was called at the time, it's now the SRG, so basically the federal TAC teams. Myself and another guy ran their sniper capability. Solomon Islands was um, part of the, the Ramsey mission over there. So it was a stabilization mission after the military had um, got it to a, a point where it's reasonably stable there. Then they transitioned over to a law enforcement-led stabilisation program, which was actually lauded by a lot of overseas governments going, what Australia did in that context was actually very unique and very successful. And any of those deployments over that time that, that come to mind, any anyone that can give us a, a, a bit of an, a spotlight on yeah, what well, you were doing there? You know, obviously it's a very unique environment to, um, you're talking proper jungle you know you t it's the most likely place on the planet you're going to get malaria out, out of anywhere on earth solomon island is number one there's crocodiles there's um, ex-militia we had a particular ex-militia individual and you've got to understand some of these the civil war they'd had there is now over so th they weren't militia anymore they were just ex-militia so we had our top like our top 10 that we were just sort of systematically hunting down and arresting and there's, a, there's another layer of complexity when you're hunting down people who are armed overseas in the jungle. You know, if we kill them, that's a deemed a failure if anyone, anyone, offender included, is harmed or killed. So with um, some information to come in for that particular militia individual, it had actually come from a couple of our sources. And their reasoning was because they were terrorizing their village areas. I don't think they're sort of naturally inclined to dob on someone, but it was like, actually, we need this guy away from our kids and, and our family environments. So 
you know, we met with some guys, made sure that the information that they were giving us was credible, and then put together a mission plan that you would back here in in Australia, like from a in that SMEAC format. Um, so very carefully planned out, you know, missions requirements and who was doing what. We were at um, GBR in Guadalcanal. We were going to motor five hours down the coast, stage two or three kilometres offshore, and then covertly insert one o'clock in the morning using um, rubber inflatable boats. The sources, you know, that were going to be in situ, I'd given them some um, like IR siloam sticks and given them some direction. So I want you to put it like, you know, this many steps apart, 20 metres apart, and I want you to hang it up, you know, at least, you know, so six, eight feet in the air off one of the trees. So when we're coming in, we're going to have it reasonably pinpointed where we want to meet you. But that's our visual recognition because just in case it changes due to some sort of environmental. Um, and what you're talking about is is these um, sign points, if you will, that can only be picked up with not vision, not vision goggles. Yeah, so, yeah. but And you've got some folks insiders yeah. in there that are yeah. almost guiding you into yeah. where you need to be. Yeah. And those locals did a great job. To be honest with you, some of the, the locals were walking with you at night time are going, how is this guy doing what he's doing? Like, I'm struggling. It's stinking hot. And um, I'm, I'm using the latest, you know, $30,000 MVG systems. And I'm looking at this guy and he's walking with no shoes on and he's doing exactly shorts the, the same job. Shorts the singlet. <laughs> yeah. I was like going, you know, we might think we're cool, but that guy's a little bit cooler, you know. Anyway, because we've got to be careful too because the, um, as you'd expect, having some foreign team roll into your village, it's not going to be always um, met with open arms, depending on where it was in the um, Solomon Islands island chain. So we need to do what we, we do as quickly and efficiently and safely for everyone as we can, but we can't muck around either because, you know, then you sort of introduce a whole different level of complexity. In this occasion, our quarry had an attempt to flee, but the measures we'd put in place, it was sort of wrapped up pretty quickly and without any um, significant injury. And then what happens? You take him back to Honiara or something like that and, it's, and he's handed over to local police? Or? Yeah, I mean, we're still in the middle of nowhere. So it's like yeah. quick apologies to the, the chief of that uh, village. So, you know, we're doing this for your benefit just as much as the rest of the country. And then we just we got out of there as quick as we can. As soon as we got to a shoreline, you know, a vessel came in because we obviously didn't have to be covert anymore, pick him up. And then, you know, they take him back to Guadalcanal, Rovay Prison. And then, yeah, we just, you know, make sure we got all our kit and Off get on our rubber. Yeah rubber inflatables, get on the boat, go back. Mate, there'd be a lot of people listening, myself included, who would be almost surprised to hear, you know, the the, the federal police actually play. That, that's like a paramilitary type yeah. of an operation. And um, people would have an awareness of peacekeeping groups that are dropped into as they have been into Vanuatu and, you know, Solomons over the years. But that's sort of next level. And, that, and that's, as you said before, that's one of countless operations Hundreds. that you're involved in of a similar nature some probably went as well some went a bit pear-shaped and you know goodness me what a what a what a period of your life that must have been yeah it's like i said it's very unique for law enforcement it's it, you know the afp does a really good job at actually um i suppose covering off on those requirements but they they don't chest beat about it mm, mm. Uh, it's very low key mm. and there's good reason for that you know we can talk about it now it's it's quite historic they just work in the background and they get the results. But it, like I, I, I pinch myself all the time going, you know, it's such a steep requirement 
on on us as police you know from um even even the tactical work we're doing here in australia it's like another level yeah. above that yeah for sure it's sort of up there almost with sort of sas special air services type of deployments for the military isn't it it's it's not it's not too far removed from some of that gear definitely the application of methodology and tactics mm. um obviously it, it is different of course uh, no one's no one's ever going to say any different but the level of complexity you're using um, similar tradecraft, but you know there's some of the expectations on us from a results perspective and strategic and you know very very different. Mate, I, I know guys that have done peacekeeping deployments, you know, New Zealand police, like Australian police, into Vanuatu and things yeah. like that. But it's mate, nothing like that. That's yeah. next. That's next level. Yeah. And like you say, it's it's covert for yeah. a reason. It's yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So Jason, after uh, close to. 10 years, New South Wales Police, and, and, and you were uh, deployed in a, a range of different uh, high-level units. You had a, um, a short time away from the job overseas, came back into New South Wales Police, and as is often the case, the punishment, of course, for going away is you come back into general duties. They, yeah. <laughs> they like to remind you that, well, you know, you've had a step away and yep. you've got to pay your penance, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, so um, I, I resigned for an opportunity working in Iraq and uh, I was comfy that I'd sort of ticked all the boxes with that activity. I actually rejoined New South Wales. Yeah, it's like a two-week rejoinee program, New South Wales, as you were saying. And yeah, I found myself um, in a temporary sort of holding pattern in general duties, you know, five minutes from home on the central coast. And um, to be honest with you, as much as I was not a happy camper, when I found out that was what I was going to be doing for six months, maybe it was fantastic because it, I, you know, back in uniform, that's a core policing sort of, you know, provision. Yeah. You know, so you're back yeah. at your ground roots, but I'm back now as and I've got kids. Mm. So my whole perspective on everything has changed. Mm. And obviously I've got a lot more experience because I've done my tactical work and I've been just come back from a war zone. So, um, yeah, it was a, it was a really good, um, I really enjoyed it. Mm, that's interesting, isn't it? Because like you say, initially when you're told, oh, yeah, welcome back in, welcome back in, but you're going to be on general duties. And it's it's a bit of a come down from where you've been. It's almost a circling back to uh, sort of 90, 97, 98. But, but yeah. the, the actual, once you got in amongst it, you're going, actually, this is this is why I joined in the first, this is sort of yeah, yeah. what it's all about. And also coming back from a war zone, there was a level of um, like, peace you know being you know even in the frenetic world of gen general duties which it is it's out of control this is nice and calm so yeah i, I really enjoyed it and i enjoyed coming in with a renewed passion for it yes and perspective and i was very grateful for being there now interestingly just on that as you've said you've, you've come back from you know one of the highest profile war zones in the world absolute carnage you've come back into general duties and there's a sort of a a calming feeling there then tragically, you're sent to a job. You know, general duties. We know you just never know what's going to come through the radio. You yeah. know, and things can be going along. You're there, you're working, and then suddenly you attend a job, and it's a job that um, that can stay with you for all the wrong reasons for the rest of your life. And I think you might have attended one of those. I was working on a Saturday with a one of my partners, female partner, and um, there was a job came on F three freeway down near Hawkesbury of a, a motor vehicle accident. So yeah, we copied that and made our way there from pretty, pretty rough weather. 
a really localized storm cell went through really quickly. So by the time we got there, it was sun's out. Everything's, you know, quite wet. Mm. And there was a lot of water on the side of the freeway. And what had happened is a female driver, 29 years of age, coming down the freeway and just hit, aquaplaned her vehicle and it shot through the guardrail, which is unusual. And it's quite a steep, heavily, pretty dense, decent sized trees. So the car's bounced its way down. So it's going to be quite a serious accident. Um, I parked up near where the, um, where she, obviously her vehicles pushed through the barrier and left my partner up there with the radio and everything and just said, listen, you, when everyone starts turning up, you know, you're up here. So I climbed down because it was really arduous getting through all the, the bush. And um, I get to the car and the paramedics are sort of trying to work. There's one paramedic there and he's trying to work out how to get her out of the car. Mm. And it, so he goes, mate, just come here, hold her hand. And he, he went around the other side and he was, he was, you know, just working on and ensuring that the vehicle, because it was jammed between two trees, that it wasn't just going to actually let go and then him and I would get injured as well. Anyway, so I'm holding her hand and she's sort of just like, um, you know, taking really shallow, fast breathing, you know, obviously very seriously injured internally really pretty, you know, just like everything about it looked untouched, you know. Yeah. Um, so I'm holding a hand and just trying to comfort her. And it's like, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot, of, there's a gravity in that, you know, and, a, and there's a lot of responsibility in that where you're holding someone's hand. And basically she um, took a last breath. And I, so as, as soon as, as soon as she passed, passed away, um, I've sort of deferred to the paramedic. Hey, do we need to be doing you know, compressions and, you know, what, what did he want me to do? Mm. And he goes, no, no, like, mate, she's gone. And because he'd already made some assessments and obviously, um, you know, he was, he was quite, um, sure of how bad, you know, she was mm. and, you know, I, I don't go into their world. So he, he came over and we, we, he did another assessment and he goes, no, mate, she's like, there's absolutely nothing we can do. Plus she, like the, she was sort of jammed in, so we, it's not as if we could pull her out and do CPR easily. Um, anyway, so yeah, she passed away. And, uh, you know, so your Saturday morning where I was like half an hour earlier, I was just looking forward to going down to a local cafe to get a coffee and fly the, the mm. New South Wales police flag That's around. And, mm. um, and then you're here and, he, and then you're just like, wow. And I, anyway, I said to him, I'm going to get back up to the freeway and we're just, you know, I'm going to have to make a few calls, crash investigation. And, um, and then we've got to obviously, um, be able to recover everything as well. And her, and I started walking up, I got about halfway up between where this car was and the road. And you can imagine I'm literally grabbing hold of things to climb. And I hear a phone ring in the middle of the bush. And I knew straight away, it's obviously a phone, you know, that's popped out of her car when mm -hmm. it's been banging. Anyway, um, it rang long enough for me to actually find it and I picked it up and then obviously I'm not going to answer it because then I've got to, you know, someone's going to say, well, why is this dude, you know, answering her phone? So I let it ring out, but then, it, and then the, the message bank pops up on it straight away and it, it wasn't locked, you know, I just pressed play and, and then made the fatal error of putting it up and listening to it. And then I, I, I hear this message come into the phone from her eight-year-old son, who's, she'd been away for a weekend with some girlfriends and then obviously she was on her way home. So he's rang her 
And, and basically the message was, hey, mummy, um, I cannot wait to see you. I've missed you so much. And then we're going to the movies tonight. Yeah, and, and then basically every little trigger you could imagine like that would really cut you to the bone, this eight-year-old kid said it in this message. And I'm standing there in the middle of the bush and then the message en ends and I'm just standing there going, and I, it literally just floored me. Like it literally just sucked every bit of, like air out of my lungs and even now like I, I can still um actually take myself back to that emotion so i'm standing there just going why did i listen to that message and then um i walk up to the roadway and and my partner comes over and she goes are you okay because i was just like you know just in my own little world for a second and then i just handed her the phone and pressed <laughs> pressed the message unfortunately i had to trans trans share the pain i suppose mm. Anyway, next thing you know, she's in tears. She's in the car, and because um, you know, I'd explained, you know, that um, his mum has just passed away. I was holding a hand. Um, so yeah, um, you know, I've been involved and seen so many things over the years, and so much tragedy and just like shocking stuff. But it's funny the ones that really get under your skin. That one got under my skin because it was like, um, just you know, I was walking up and I was processing the fact and the gravity of just holding someone's hand with their last breaths. And, you know, I was just been, you know, talking to her softly and saying, you're going to be okay. The same things that people had said to me, mm. you know, 10 years earlier or 11 years earlier, you know, while I'm laying on the street and just to have the, the gravity of it reinforced by that, that woman's, um, child. Um, and because of now I've got, I'm policing, I'm doing, um, uniform policing and I've got kids of my own the reality of the of that area in police work just like hit me like a like a brick to the mm. side of the head so um yeah just really um just come from left field and it doesn't allow you to set up some of those bits of armor that you normally get to start placing in front of you yes. mentally yes. it's just like straight through to the keeper and you know touches your there's soul a, there's a real rawness about it isn't yeah. there and and, and it's Jason, it's I just uh, you know the the honesty in which you're speaking about this because, like you said, you know, coppers can sit around and you can tell all these war stories and all these things that that people who haven't been the job, people who haven't experienced it, they're almost disbelieving. And then mm. it's something like that, and in its tragedy, it's just such a simple thing. It's mm. it's um, you know, you're holding a woman's hand at, at yeah. the time of her death, but then the the tipping point when the little bloke leaves the message on mum's phone and. It's all, like you say, it's all that stuff. And, and maybe, maybe for you too, Jason, there's that, uh, there's that unmistakable connection back to when you yourself are on the other side, almost of that situation. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's all comes in together, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you, if there's any silver lining to it, it's just the, um, exposure to that level of tragedy and grief, the, um, you know, you wouldn't wish it upon anyone, but the one thing that I do draw from it. It's just the how you know precious and fleeting life can be. Like I said, you, you, you could, there's a couple of pathways you can go after. You know, you can sort of suck on your thumb and sit in the corner. Not the not the best analogy, but no, no, um, you, mean. Yeah. you know, or you can um, you know learn from it as much as best you can and you know, try to pull some positive from it. And, and I suppose for me, it's just like you know maintaining my empathy 
whilst you're wearing a uniform, being grateful all the time because you're, you're breathing. And, um, yeah, just having a positive pathways to how you pro- try to process it. Yeah. I, I just want to thank you so much. This has been, um, goodness me, I've, I've just such enjoyed both meeting you and, 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 and hearing some of your experiences. And, and I just know that so many that will listen to this will take so much from it. Such a storied career, but such a tragic start to it and, and all of that. But, you know, for your honesty and opening up about that, Jason, I really thank you for that. Um I've read through so much of the stuff that you've done and the different environments that you've worked in and we could do half a dozen of these and still only touch on the surface. And I say that because for you to have included that story about that tragic event with that woman passing and the driving, it just it just sort of shows to me the person that you are because you've come back to the humanity of what it is that um, police officers do and it's not it's not chest beating, it's 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 and you said that yourself, you know. This was just a, a job that you attended on a Saturday afternoon, a Saturday morning, and yet it's one of those ones, for all these different reasons, it'll stay with you for the rest of your life. And uh, Jason, just thank you so much for coming, and thanks for your honesty, and thanks for sharing this with us. Thank you very much for having me, and um, there's a little bit of trauma in there, of course, but um, you know, for any of the listeners, especially if there's anyone still within law enforcement, it's like... Um, you know, if the only advice I would give you is remember why you joined the police. You just be grateful all the time of, I suppose, the opportunity you have to help other people. And never lose sight of that because it's easy to. Maintain empathy, but maintain it, that empathy for yourself as well. If you don't have empathy for yourself, yeah, it's going to be very hard to do so for others. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate your time. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly.